0: Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. Where does the year go? It feels like yesterday when I did the last Christmas special. Covid is still raging. The UK is getting poorer and going into steep decline, and times have been getting harder for more and more people. I hope at least today we can have some Christmas cheer. Many Victorians went through terrible times and Christmas was seen as a thing to treasure and celebrate. I'd like to thank all you wonderful patrons who donate to keep the show alive and thriving. I'm working on part two of the Dickens murder special which should be out soon. I'd also like to say a big Merry Christmas to all you lovely listeners who email, talk to me on Facebook or on Twitter and share wonderful history stories or family histories or so much more. If you listen to the show, please do get in touch, as I love hearing from you. Also, a big happy Christmas, and welcome back to Frank from the Empires of History podcast. Frank is a great guy, and has been covering the Ottoman Empire. This is a vital topic for understanding European history, yet is scandalously neglected in most history classes. The Ottomans were diaphragm Between East and West, occupied a strategic position in the Mediterranean, and were a key reason why 19th century European history played out as it did, including getting the UK involved in the Crimean War, being a key investment market for the industrialising British, and frequently influencing British Victorian international relations. They were also one of the longest lived empires in history with a vibrant culture and novel philosophies. So check out Frank and his show, The Empires of History. I've also had a listener review, four star, from Fred Ferd, USA, quote, wonderful podcast, great writing and subject matter. Only thing preventing five stars is using a weird falsetto voice when quoting Victoria, which sounds odd and distracting. Would be better. Just quoting her in his normal smooth voice, or use a female for those parts. Otherwise, one of my favorite podcasts. Thank you for the review. And as always, if there are any female listeners out there who are willing to read for Victoria, I'd love to hear from you. At 2N left me a comment saying, Greetings from the Netherlands. Yes, not Holland. An absolutely lovely episode again. I love the fitting background music when you were talking about The Railway King, you had no idea that I was interested in the Victorian age before starting your podcast. I am getting close to being caught up to the latest episode and I am dreading the day it happens. Who else will entertain me during my morning cup of coffee? I do want to mention that you made a slight mistake in this episode, number 28, that I cannot get past as a biologist. You said that in most journals, you'll find that it was p infestans that caused the potato blight, but it actually was HERB1. However, HERB1 is a infestans, but just a specific strain. Just like all coronavirus variants are still just SARS-CoV-2, it sounds nitpicky, I know, but I also know you strive for providing the best information possible. Now, I'm going to continue with episode 28. And finish my coffee so I can get to work. Keep up the good work and stay healthy. End quote. I love these tiny little details. No correction is too small. No piece of trivia too obscure. Please send them my way. Now, one thing to emphasize, as I've said before, is that a lot of what we consider very old traditions are actually brand new. But singing? Singing was a favorite pastime for the Victorians and many of the most famous Christmas carols were first written in the Victorian era or old words were put to new tunes. Here's a list of some of the classics from Queen Victoria's reign. 1847, saw O Holy Night by Adolphe Adam. 1849, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, Edmund Sears. 1853, Good King Wenceslas from John Mason Neal. 1857, Jingle Bells by James Lord Pierpont. 1857, again, We Three Kings of Orient Are, John Henry Hopkins, Jr. 1862, Angels We Have Heard on High. From James Chadwick. 1864, Up on the House Top. From Benjamin Hanby. 1865, Go Tell It on the Mountain. 1865, as well, What Child Is This? 1868, Saw O Little Town of Bethlehem. And finally, 1887, Away in a Manger. That does mean we know that Prince Albert never heard O Little Town of Bethlehem or Away in a Manger. Some of these carols were controversial at the time, or their composers. Reverend Dr. Neil had time to write Good King Wenceslas because he was an Anglican who was ostracised from the church for his support of the Oxford movement. Unable to get a ministry, he spent years working to help the poor, founded an order of nuns, and continued his top eight scholarship. He wrote a book called Deeds of Faith for his daughter Agnes in 1849, and told the Wenceslas legend as the eleventh story. He said, quote, The eleventh, supposing it a legend, is a legend of such extreme beauty that it may well find a place in a series of tales like the present, End quote. He was clearly taken with it, and worked it into a carol. The music was based off a thirteenth century song, Tempest Adest Floridum, or Spring Has Unwrapped Her Flowers, and Neil drew heavily on the Swedish-Finnish published work Piae Cantiones from the 16th century. And yes, I know I pronounced that incorrectly. All in all, it took a huge amount of research, dedication and a lot of creativity to bring together these influences to create the new, soon-to-be all-time classic. I'm sure it won't surprise you that critical reception, the time was harsh and... Nobody seemed to recognise that it was a work for the ages. Luckily, Neil didn't believe in copywriting and wanted his work to be part of the common community of Christendom, as he put it, so it was easily reproduced. I think he would be delighted to hear that his cow has become one of the most famous songs in the world, although what he'd think of the various arrangements, I'm not sure. The Financial Times swears the best ever version is by the Skydiggers on their 2013 EP. I'm not convinced, but it's worth a listen if you like an edgy Christmas arrangement. I think the absolute best version, one that probably nails the original intent, was Good King Wenceslas from P.I. Cantiones by the Danish National Vocal Ensemble, conducted by Michael Bogensen and with Michelle Petri on recorder. You can find it on various famous video sites but I can't play you a clip here for copyright reasons. The original Reverend Neil would be horrified. Purists might say it is supposed to be a duet only but nuts to them. If you want an English folk version try the always fabulous Blackmore's Night Good King Wenceslas live at Minstrel Hall. And yes it is that Richie Blackmore from Deep Purple. Kevin Neal himself died, inevitably young, almost broke and with no religious career, despite decades of dedication, countless hours translating Latin and producing mountains of religious histories of the highest order, as well as a long list of hymns, books and other materials. Despite this, few people today know his name. He was, at least, extremely highly regarded at the end of his life considered a paragon of meek Christian tolerance and seems to have had a mischievous sense of humour. When a friend showed him an original piece he'd written, Neil waited for the friend to leave the room, translated it into flawless Latin. Then, when the friend returned, Neil denounced him as a fraud and produced the Latin original, air quotes, to the shock of all, before revealing the prank. He was given that ultimate Victorian accolade in one of his obituaries, his music and his sermons were to be regarded as manly. Quote, instead of committing the grave error of feminizing his sermons and counsels at St Margaret's, because he had only women to deal with, he aimed at showing them the masculine side of Christianity, also to teach them its strength as well as its beauty. End quote. Yes, that is sexism that rings down the ages. Of course, money was important to how and where carols were enjoyed. The Queen naturally had musicians, but she and Elbert often played piano and sung together. She also hosted visiting opera singers, musicians and other superstars of the entertainment industry. As She and Elbert had a piano in each of their private apartments. In 1856, Queen Victoria was presented with the now famous Golden Piano which has often been spotted behind Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II during her Christmas Day speeches. Made by French firm S&P Erad, it was gilded and painted by the miniature painter Francois Theodore Rochard. It was actually based on the early French 18th century style and was similar to one Victoria had owned earlier, but it was on a grander scale and was supposed to be a centrepiece of the Buckingham Palace staterooms. Erard were an innovative firm and were piano makers to Prince Albert as well as supplying Liszt, Chopin and many others. The designs on the golden piano depict cherubs as well as singeries which are comical scenes showing monkeys playing musical instruments and generally causing mischief. Incidentally, if you fancy one for Christmas I hope you have a $175,000 spare plus a big living room for a Erard Louis Sixteenth style gold-trimmed concert grand piano with Ormelo accents, which is the closest to the Royal Piano I've found for sale. Of course, you could wait a couple of years, as the way the UK is going, the Queen's original will be up on eBay to raise a few bob. You can find other Victorian upright pianos for sale. Many are stunningly beautiful. Unfortunately, during the 1950s and 60s, the Victorian upright pianos fell out of fashion and Britain began a long-running hatred of the Victorian era. Thousands of elaborate antique pianos have simply been scrapped or burnt. As one antiques dealer said, One was advertised recently for 26,000 euros. But in local auctions here, unrestored ones are more likely to fetch 26 quid. And, for most people in England, the main options are to pay the council to put them in the landfill or donate them to me if I can justify the transport costs. Or else it's a box of matches and a gallon of paraffin, so irreplaceable history goes up in smoke. If you're lucky, there might be some scrap metal left, end quote. This is heartbreaking. Even if unplayable for some reason, many Victorian pianos were works of art. They were a world away, from the plain bash-the-keys-in-the-pub pianos that blight the second-hand market, from elaborate wood to a coco or gothic stylings, with Chinese art or fanciful cherubs multiple leg styles. Pianos were a Victorian staple, but actually looking at them shows one of huge changes. Sweeping the United Kingdom in the 19th century. All the way back in 1815, pianos were a rare luxury item. They required a few things. You had to be wealthy to own one, you had to be wealthy to have enough space for one, and you had to have the time, money, and inclination to learn to play them. Even amongst the wealthy, the new money could be caught out as lacking the requisite social breeding if they owned a piano but couldn't play it. By 1820, there were perhaps only 50,000 in the world, with half of those in the UK. Music itself was expensive, and often only handwritten copies of sheet music were available. That meant most people in the UK would never see or touch a piano. So when Victoria sang with Albert while she played piano, she was indulging in a hobby of the rich. I'm about to throw some Class related stuff your way. So, just a brief note that the British class system was very close to a caste system, but it wasn't, and it had a lot of gradations, although social mobility was seen as a bad thing. It wasn't just upper, middle, and lower class. Our full rundown could reasonably include monarchy, then the royal family, which sit above the upper class, then the upper, upper class which was the top of the aristocracy, then the lower upper class, like the Viscounts or Barons or Knights. Then there were the Gentry, who skirted the borders of the lower upper class and upper middle class. There was the upper middle class, the middle middle class, and the lower middle class, who often clung on in genteel poverty. Below them sat the mass of the working class, also known as the mob. The upper working class could be rich tradesmen, and a very few of those could actually be rather rich. Then the lower working class, where most of the population sat, perhaps 80%, whilst below them were the precarious, who teetered above the underclass, followed by the wretched underclass, who were clinging grimly on to life, perhaps only with the army or navy as a chance of escape. Then below them were the destitute and the damned, Stealing food from the gutters or dying in the workhouses. Victorians, of course, knew very precisely what class people belonged to. And even today in Britain, people are pretty class conscious and class restrictions blight our society. In the 1850s, something interesting was happening. The middle class was getting richer, larger and had more time. They had better houses with the room And stability for pianos. Piano playing was a marker of social aspiration and even social climbing. Many upper class Victorians sneered at richer upper middle class families and their middle class daughters with pianos, but gradually, as they became more common, a grudging acceptance set in. Then came the really big changes industrialization that allowed mass production of pianos in Germany. America and the United Kingdom, combined with a novel concept, higher purchase agreements. A middle-class family could buy a piano with a deposit followed by regular payments, an instalment plan, a novel financial innovation. Cheap sheet music began to be produced and pianos even started appearing in theatres and pubs. Even the lower middle class could begin to aspire to owning and playing a piano during the 1860s and 1870s. Famous Steinway, for example, appeared in 1853, with the inferior square pianos being slowly replaced with the far superior but manageable uprights. Since music had to be live, access to a piano was an enormous boost to middle class domestic life, from dances to relaxation to hymns. All in the comfort of the respect middle-class home, even the most conservative Anglican Christian or highest-minded temperance campaigner could approve of this kind of piano played at home. Although things were seldom as straightforward as they appear, as Holman Hunt's famous painting, The Awakening Conscience, shows with its protagonist sitting in front of the piano as the virtuous young lady Finds her resolve at the last moments of the dastardly seduction. Not that the middle class were playing grand pianos. The piano is a very complex instrument, and the grand piano solved some design problems at the cost of space. There were a form of upright piano in the Georgian era, but they were often extremely tall, far too tall for a middle class home in town. Just a reminder. When you watch period dramas, people described as middle class are living in homes that would have actually been upper class homes or country houses of the super rich. British housing has always been on the small side and TV producers always upsize on rooms to make shooting easier. Since the working class, often in rental accommodation, was cramped, unhygienic and back to back with no lighting. Christmas carols at a piano were a long way down the list of priorities, unlike, say, campaigning for the right not to have to work 12-hour days in a coal mine or the right to have water free from sewage. Even for the middle classes, a piano needed to be compact. Many technological breakthroughs were needed. The upright piano soon made the old square styles obsolete. They were smaller than grand pianos and could be mass-produced but they needed some serious design innovation. They weren't really in circulation till the 1870s, so in many places, like the Old West, saloons were at best stuck with square pianos. You can knock the ideas of saloons in Nowheresville, Nebraska, having modern pianos in cheap saloons in the 1870s and even the 1880s right on the head. Even if the owner had looked Gloriously dragged one onto a train, then a wagon, to the establishment at enormous expense. He would have struggled to get someone who knew how to play them. Oh, and good luck finding a piano tuner out on the prairies. That old time prospector in the movies who mysteriously knows how to play in a deserted saloon whilst the hero narrows his eyes and the villain has a last shot of whiskey was a Hollywood. If a cowboy wanted Christmas music, he had to go to church or the local theatre. Oh, and even if they had a piano in the saloon, they wouldn't have played that classic Hollywood ragtime either. The first published ragtime piano piece was W.H. Krill's Mississippi Rag in 1897. Design challenges continued, even positioning candle holders nearer and nearer the sheet music was a challenge since that section was historically just a layer of fabric, not solid wood. That might sound minor, but given that even the south of the UK could be dark, surprisingly early, or rather overcast, the lack of electric light meant a Victorian needed a candle up close to see the music. By the 1880s, piano makers gave up the fight and installed solid front pieces of wood instead of fabric which strengthened the instrument, but meant the sound only came out of the back, making it a little quieter. Yet this in turn allowed better strings at higher tension, made possible by techniques learnt from the telegraph, in turn leading to louder pianos. Even the number of octaves was in flux. Early Georgian pianos often had only four octaves. Ironically, this upsizing trend is ongoing as modern electric pianos continue to extend their register. All in all, progress was rapid, but hugely diverse, with a dizzying array of styles across countries and makers. To say you can trace the linear progress of the history of the piano would be like saying you could trace the linear development of the car. You can point to some moments where things are becoming a more common feature, in the very same way you can see when seatbelts arrive, but not much more. For the working class, pianos represented the music hall and the pub, but both of those could easily cater for Christmas music, like simple carols. Still, it was a rare working class person who ever touched a piano. For them, the most common instruments would be cheap fiddles, washboards, cymbals, flutes, and spoons. In America, though, many higher class brothels, especially in New Orleans, Enthusiastically adopted pianos to advertise their status. What does this mean for Victorian Christmas carols? Well, it is a very good reminder that the sounds you hear today would not have been how the Victorians would have heard them. Instruments would have been different. Tuning might have been a touch more inconsistent than we are used to. So local musicians might well have had to change keys to adapt. It would have been a rare Victorian who heard trumpets. Symbols and harps in a cathedral for a candlelit Christmas concert, despite every Christmas concert these days being called a Victorian Christmas. If you are feeling picky when watching a period drama, just check out the style of piano and the class of the person playing it. The Baby Grand, for instance, wasn't invented till the 1880s, and no Victorian middle class man was buying his daughters a sleek black grand concert piano with no decorations, or putting it in the ballroom in the 1840s. The best place for highly polished music for the Victorians would have been a large church or an aristocrat's house. For most middle classes, someone played piano at home whilst the guests either listened or sang. It was communal and helped form strong bonds, which means if you want to hear traditional Victorian Christmas carols, You don't need the candlelight orchestra at the Royal Albert Hall. You need a piano, some sheet music, lots of friends to sing along with and plenty of steaming hot punch to enjoy before you have mince pies and light the flaming bowl of alcohol for a nice game of Snapdragon before bed. As always, I've decided to provide an alternative for those of you lily-livered milksops Too afraid to play a manly game of snapdragon. Here is a little Christmas story. I know last year we talked about the dangers of Victorian sweets and the mass poisonings. So I think we should do something less dramatic. How about a nice story? How about a nice story about a man, his daughter and a child's favourite doll? Very festive. What could go wrong with a doll at Christmas? It was a terrible accident. And for one moment, the splendid machinery of Cranston House got out of gear and stood still. The butler emerged from the retirement in which he spent his elegant leisure. Two grooms of the chamber appeared simultaneously from opposite directions. There were actually housemaids on the grand staircase, and those who remember the facts most exactly assert that mrs pringle herself positively stood upon the landing mrs pringle was the housekeeper as for the head nurse the under nurse and the nursery maid their feelings cannot be described the head nurse laid one hand upon the polished marble balustrade and stared stupidly before her the under nurse stood rigid and pale leaning against the polished marble wall and the nursery maid collapsed and sat down upon the polished marble step just beyond the limits of the velvet carpet and frankly burst into tears the lady gwendoline lancaster douglas scrope youngest daughter of the ninth duke of cranston and aged six years and three months picked herself up quite alone and sat down on the third step, from the front of the grand staircase in Cranston House. Oh, ejaculated the butler, and he disappeared again. Ah, responded the grooms of the chambers, as they also went away. It's only that doll, Mrs Pringle was distinctly heard to say, in a tone of contempt. The under-nurse heard her say it. Then the three nurses gathered round Lady Gwendolyn and patted her, and gave her unhealthy things out of their pockets, and hurried her out of Cranston Hall as fast as they could, lest it should be found out upstairs that they had allowed Lady Gwendolyn, Lancaster, Douglas, Scroop, six and a half, to tumble down the grand staircase with the doll in her arms. And as the doll was badly broken, the nursemaid carried it with pieces wrapped up, in Lady Gwendolyn's little cloak. It was not far to Hyde Park and when they reached a quiet place they took means to find out that Lady Gwendolyn had no bruises for the carpet was very thick and soft and there was thick stuff under it to make it softer. Lady Gwendolyn Douglas Scroop, six and a half, sometimes yelled but she never cried. It was because she had yelled that the nurse had allowed her to go downstairs alone, with Nina the doll under one arm, while she steadied herself with the other hand on the balustrade, and trod upon the polished marble steps beyond the edge of the carpet, so she had fallen and Nina had come to grief. When the nurses were quite sure she was not hurt, they unwrapped the doll and looked at her in turn. She had been a very beautiful doll, very large, and fair and healthy, with real yellow hair and eyelids that would open and shut over very grown up dark eyes. Moreover, when you moved her right arm up and down, she said, Papa, and when you moved to the left, she said, Mamma, very distinctly. I heard her say, Pa, when she fell, said the under nurse, who heard everything, but she ought to have said, Papa. That's because her arm went up when she hit the step said the head nurse she'll say the other par when i put it down Pa, said nina as her right arm was pushed down and speaking through her broken face it was crack right across from the upper corner of the forehead with a hideous gash through the nose and down to the frilled collar of the pale green silk mother hubbard style frock and two little three-cornered pieces of porcelain had fallen out I'm sure it's a wonder she can speak at all, being all smashed, said the under-nurse. You'll have to take her to Mr. Puckler, said her superior. It's not far, and you'd better go at once. Lady Gwendolyn was occupied in digging a hole in the ground with a little spade, and paid no attention to the nurses. What are you doing? inquired the nursery maid, looking on. Nina's dead, and I'm digging her a grave, replied her ladyship thoughtfully. Oh, she'll come to life again, all right, said the nursery maid. Mr. Bernard Puckler and his little daughter lived in a little house in a little alley, which led out a quiet little street not very far from Belgravia Square. He was the great doll doctor, and his extensive practice lay in the most aristocratic quarter. He mended dolls of all sizes and ages, boy dolls and girl dolls baby dolls in long clothes and grown-up dolls fashionable gowns talking dolls and dumb dolls those that shut their eyes when they lay down and those whose eyes had to be shut for them by ways of a mysterious wire his daughter Elsie was only just over 12 years old but she was already very clever at mending dolls clothes and at doing their hair which is harder than you might think though the dolls sit quiet whilst it is being done. Mr. Puckler had originally been a German, but he had dissolved his nationality in the Ocean of London many years ago, like a great many foreigners. He still had one or two German friends, however, who came on Saturday evenings and smoked with him and played piquet or scat with him for farthing points and called him Herr Doctor, which seemed to please Mr. Puckler very much. He looked older than he was, for his beard was rather long and ragged, his hair was grizzled and thin, and he wore horn rimmed spectacles. As for Elsie, she was a thin, pale child, very quiet and neat, with dark eyes and brown hair that was plaited down her back and tied with a bit of black ribbon. She mended the dolls' clothes and took the dolls back to their homes and they were quite strong again. The house was a little one, but too big for the two people who lived in it. There was a sitting room on the street and the workshop was at the back and there were three rooms upstairs. But the father and daughter lived most of their time in the workshop because they were generally at work, even in the evenings. Mr. Puckler laid Nina on the table and looked at her a long time till the tears began to fill his eyes behind the horn-rimmed spectacles. He was a very susceptible man and he often fell in love with the dolls he mended, and found it hard to part with them, when they had smiled at him for a few days. They were real little people to him, with characters and thoughts and feelings of their own, and he was very tender with them all, but some attracted him especially from the first, and when they were brought to him maimed and injured, their state seemed so pitiful to him that the tears came easily. You must remember that he had lived among dolls during a greater part of his life and understood them. How do you know they feel nothing? He went on to say to Elsie. You must be gentle with them. It costs nothing to be kind to the little beings and perhaps it makes a difference to them. And Elsie understood him because she was a child and she knew that she was more to him than all the dolls. He fell in love with Nina at first sight, perhaps because her beautiful brown glass eyes were something like Elsie's own. And he loved Elsie first and best with all his heart, and besides was a very sorrowful case. Nina had evidently not been long in the world, for her complexion was perfect, her hair was smooth where it should be smooth, and curly where it should be curly, and her silk clothes were perfectly new. But across her face was that frightful gash, like a sabre cut, deep and shadowy within, but clean and sharp at the edges. When he tenderly pressed her head close to the gaping wound, the edges made a fine grating sound that was painful to hear, and the lids of the dark eyes quivered and trembled as though Nina were suffering dreadfully. Poor Nina, he exclaimed sorrowfully, but I shall not hurt you much, though you will take a long time to get strong. He always asked the names of the broken dolls when they were brought to him, and sometimes the people knew what the children called them and told him. He liked Nina for a name altogether and in every way she pleased him more than any doll he had seen for many years and he felt drawn to her and made up his mind to make her perfectly strong and sound. No matter how much labour it might cost him, Mr Puckler worked patiently a little at a time and Elsie watched him. She could do nothing for poor Nina whose clothes needed no mending The longer the doll doctor worked, the more fond he became of the yellow hair and the beautiful brown glass eyes. He sometimes forgot all the other dolls that were waiting to be mended, lying side by side on the shelf, and sat for an hour gazing at Nina's face whilst he racked his ingenuity for some new invention by which to hide the smallest trace of the terrible accident. She was wonderfully mended. Even he was obliged to admit that. But the scar was still visible to his keen eyes. A very fine line right across the face. Downwards from right to left. Yet all the conditions had been most favourable for a cure. Since the cement had set quite hard at the first attempt. And the weather had been fine and dry. Which makes a great difference in a doll's hospital. At last he knew he could do no more. And the undernurse... Had already come twice to see whether the job was finished, as she coarsely expressed it. Nina is not quite strong yet, Mr. Puckler had answered each time. He could not make up his mind to face the parting, and now he sat before the square table at which he worked, and Nina lay before him for the last time, big brown paper box beside. It stood there like her coffin, waiting for her, he thought. He must put her into it, and lay tissue paper over her dear face and then put on the lid and at the thought of trying the string his sight was dim with tears again he was never to look into the glassy depths of the beautiful brown eyes any more, nor to hear the little wooden voice say papa and mama it was a very painful moment in the vain hope of gaining time before the separation he took up the little sticky bottles of cement and glue and gum and colour looking at each one in turn, and then at Nina's face. All his small tools lay there, neatly arranged in a row, but he knew that he could not use them again for Nina. She was quite strong at last, and in a country where there should be no cruel children to hurt her, she might live a hundred years, with only that almost imperceptible line across her face, to tell of the fearful thing that had befallen her on the marble steps of Cranston Hall. Suddenly, Mr. Puckler's heart was quite full, and he rose abruptly from his seat and turned away. Elsie, he said unsteadily, you must do it for me. I cannot bear to see her go into the box. So he went and stood at the window, his back turned, whilst Elsie did what he had not the heart to do. Is it done? he asked, not turning round. Then take her away, my dear. Put on your hat and take her to Cranston Hall quickly, and when you are gone... I will turn around. Elsie was used to her father's queer ways with the dolls, and though she had never seen him, so much moved by a parting, she was not much surprised. Come back quickly, he said, when he heard her hand on the latch. It is growing late, and I should not send you at this hour, but I cannot bear to look forward to it any more. When Elsie was gone, he left the window, and sat down in his place before the table again. To wait for the child to come back he touched the place where Nina had lain very gently and he recalled the softly tinted pink face and the glass eyes and the ringlets of yellow hair till he could almost see them. The evenings were long for it was late in the spring but it began to grow dark soon and Mr Parkler wondered why Elsie did not come back. She had been gone an hour and a half and that was much longer than he had expected. But it was barely a half mile from Belgravia Square to Cranston House. He reflected that the child might have been kept waiting, but as the twilight deepened, he grew anxious and walked up and down in the dim workshop, no longer thinking of Nina, but of Elsie, his own living child whom he loved. An undefinable, disquieting sensation came upon him by fine degrees a chilliness and faint. Stirring of his thin hair, joined with a wish to be in any company rather than to be alone much longer. It was the beginning of fear. He told himself in strong German English that he was a foolish old man, and he began to feel about for the matches in the dusk. He knew just where they should be, for he always kept them in the same place, close to the little tin box that held the bits of sealing wax of various colours. Some kinds of mending, but somehow he could not find the matches in the gloom. Something had happened to Elsie, he was sure, and as his fear increased, he felt as though it might be allayed if he could get a light and see what time it was. Then he called himself a foolish old man again, and the sound of his own voice startled him in the dark. He could not find the matches. The window was grey still. He might see what time it was if he went close to it and he could go and get the matches out of the cupboard afterwards. He stood back from the table to get out of the way of the chair, and began to cross the broad floor. Something was following him in the dark. There was a small pattering, as of tiny feet upon the boards. He stopped and listened, and the roots of his hair tingled. It was nothing, and he was a foolish old man. He made two steps more, and he was sure that he heard the little pattering again. He turned his back to the window, leaning against the sash, so that the panes began to crack, and he faced the dark. Everything was still, and it smelt of paste and cement and wood filings as usual. Is that you, Elsie? He asked, and he was surprised by the fear in his voice. There was no answer in the room, and he held up his watch, and tried to make out what time it was, By the grey dusk, it was not just darkness. So far as he could see, it was within two or three minutes of ten o'clock. He had been a long time alone. He was shocked and frightened for Elsie. Out in London, so late, and he almost ran across the room to the door. As he fumbled for the latch, he distinctly heard the running of the little feet after him. Mice, he exclaimed feebly. Just as he got the door open he shut it quickly behind him and felt as though some cold thing had settled on his back and were writhing upon him. The passage was quite dark but he found his hat out into the alley in a moment breathing more freely and surprised to find how much light there still was in the opening. He could see the pavement clearly under his feet and far off in the street to which the alley led he could hear the laughter and calls of children. Playing some game out of doors, he wondered how he could have been so nervous. And for an instant, he thought of going back into the house to wait quietly for Elsie. But instantly, he felt that nervous fright of something stealing over him again. In any case, it was better to walk up to Cranston House and ask the servants about the child. One of the women had perhaps taken a fancy to her and was even now giving her tea and cake. He walked quickly to the square, then up the broad streets, listening as he went, Ever there was no sound for the tiny footsteps. He heard nothing, and was laughing at himself, when he rang the servant's bell at the big house. Of course, the little girl must be there. The person who opened the door was quite an inferior person, for it was a back door, but affected the manners of the front, and stared at Mr. Puckler superciliously. Under the strong light, no little girl had been seen, and he knew nothing about no dolls. "She's my little girl," said Mr. Puckler tremulously. All his anxiety was returning tenfold, and I am afraid something has happened. That inferior person said rudely that nothing could have happened to her in that house, as she had not been there, which was jolly good reason why. And Mr. Puckler was obliged to admit. But the man ought to know, as it was his business to keep the door and let people in. He wished to be allowed to speak to the under nurse who knew him, but the man was ruder than ever and finally shut the door in his face. When the doll doctor was alone in the street, he steadied himself by the railing, for he felt as though he were breaking in two, just as some dolls break in the middle of the backbone. Presently, he knew that he must do something to find Elsie and that gave him strength. He began to walk as quickly as he could through the streets, following every highway and byway which his little girl might have taken on her errand. He also asked several policemen in vain if they had seen her, and most of them answered him kindly, for they saw he was a sober man and in his right senses, and some of them had little girls of their own. It was one o'clock in the morning when he went up to his own door again, worn out, and hopeless and broken hearted as he turned the key in the lock his heart stood still For he knew that he was awake and not dreaming and that he really heard those tiny footsteps pattering to meet him inside the house along the passage but he was too unhappy to be frightened any more, and his heart went on again with a dull regular pain that found its way through him with every pulse so he went in and hung up his hat in the dark and found the matches in the cupboard and the candlestick in its place in the corner. Mr. Puckler was so much overcome and so completely worn out that he sat down in his chair before the work table and almost fainted as his face dropped forward upon his folded hand. Beside him, the solitary candle burned steadily with a low flame in the still air. Elsie, Elsie, he moaned against his yellowed knuckles. That was all he could say and it was no relief to him. On the contrary, the very sound of the name was a new and sharp pain that pierced his ears, and his head and his very soul. Every time he repeated it, the name, it meant that little Elsie was dead somewhere out in the streets of London the dark. He was so terribly hurt, he did not even something pulling gently at the skirt of his old coat, so gently that it was like the nibbling of a tiny, He might have thought it really was a mouse, if he had noticed it. I'll see, see, he groaned against his hands. Then a cool breath stirred his thin hair, and the low flame of one candle dropped down to a mere speck, not flickering as though a draught were going to blow it out, but just dropping down as if it were tired out. Mr. Puckler felt his hands stiffening with fright under his face, and there was a faint rustling sound, like some small silk thing blown in a gentle breeze. He sat up straight, stark and scared, and a small wooden voice spoke in the stillness. Pa, pah!" it said, with a break between the syllables. Mr. Puckler stood up in a single jump, and his chair fell backwards with a smashing noise upon the wooden floor. The candle had almost gone out it was nina's dull voice that had spoken and he should have known it amongst the voices of a hundred other dolls yet there was something more to it a little human ring with a pitiful cry and a call for help and the wail of a hurt child mr puckler stood up stark and stiff and tried to look round but at first he could not for he seemed to be frozen from head to foot then he made a great effort and raised one hand to each of his temples and pressed his own head round as he would have turned a doll's. The candle was burning so low it might as well have been out altogether for any light it gave and the room seemed quite dark at first. Then he saw something he would not have believed that he could be more frightened than he had been just before that but he, and his knees shook. He saw the doll standing in the middle of the floor, shining faint ghostly radiant, her beautiful glassy brown eyes fixed on his, and across her face, the very thin line of the break he had mended shone as though it were drawn in light with a fine point white flame. Yet there was something more in the eyes, too. There was something human, like Elsie's own, but as if only the doll. Saw him through them and not Elsie, and there was enough of Elsie to bring back his pain and make him forget his fear. Elsie, my little Elsie, cried aloud. The doll moved, and its arm raised slowly and fell with a stiff, mechanical motion. Pa, pa, it said. It seemed this time there was even more of Elsie's tone echoing somewhere between the wooden notes. Reached his ears so distinctly and yet so far away. Elsie was calling him, he was sure. His face was perfectly white in the gloom, but his knees did not shake any more, and he felt he was less frightened. Yes, child, but where? Where? he asked. Where are you, Elsie? Pa, pa. The syllables died away in the quiet room. There was a low rustling of silk. The glassy brown eyes turned slowly away. Mr. Puckler heard the pitter-patter of small feet in the bronze kid slippers as the figure ran straight to the door. Then the candle burned high again. The room was full of light and he was alone. Mr. Puckler pressed his hand over his eyes and looked about him. He could see everything quite clearly. He felt that he must have been dreaming, though he was standing instead of sitting down, as he should have been if he had just woken up. The candle burned brightly now, There were dolls to be mended, lying in a row with their toes up. The third had lost her right shoe, and Elsie was making one. He knew that, and he was certainly not dreaming now. He had not been dreaming when he had come in from his fruitless search, and had heard the doll's footsteps running to the door. He had not been asleep in his chair. How could he possibly have fallen asleep when his heart was breaking? He had been awake all the time. He steadied himself set the fallen chair upon its legs and said to himself emphatically that he was a foolish old man. He ought to be out in the streets looking for his child, asking questions, inquiring at police stations where accidents were reported as soon as they were known or at the hospitals. The longing, wailing, pitiful little wooden cry rang from the passage outside the door. Mr. Puckler stood for an instant with a white face transfixed and rooted to the spot a moment later his hand was on the latch then he was in the passage and the light streaming from the open door behind him Quite right at the other end he saw the little phantom shining clearly in the shadow and the right hand seemed to beckon him as the arm rose and fell once more he knew all at once it had not come to frighten him but to lead him. When it disappeared, and he walked boldly towards the door, he knew it was in the street outside, waiting for him. He forgot that he was tired, for sudden hope ran through him, like a golden stream of life. And sure enough, at the corner of the alley, and at the corner of the street, out in the square, he saw the small ghost figure, flitting before him. Sometimes it was only a shadow, where there was other light, then the glare of lamps, made a pale green sheen on its little Mother Hubbard frock of silk. And sometimes where the streets were dark and silent, the whole figure shone out brightly with its yellow curls and rosy neck. It seemed to trot along like a little child and Mr Puckler could almost hear the pattering of the bronze kid slippers on the pavement as it ran. But it went very fast and he could only just keep up with it, tearing along with his hat on the back of his head his thin brown hair blown by the night breeze. On and on he went. He had no idea where he was, did not even care. He certainly knew that he was going the right way. Then at last, in a wide, quiet street, he was standing before a big, sober-looking door it had two lamps on either side of it, polished brass bell handle, which he pulled. And just inside, when the door opened, in the bright light, there was the little shadow, the pale green sheen of the little silk dress. And once more, the same small cry came to his ears. Less pitiful, more longing. Papa? The shadow turned suddenly bright. Out of the brightness, the beautiful brown glass eyes were turned up happily to his, whilst the rosy mouth smiled so divinely that the phantom doll, almost like a little angel then. A little girl was brought in soon after 10 o'clock said the quiet voice of the hospital doorkeeper. I think they thought she was only stunned. She was holding a big brown paper box against her, and they could not get it out of her arms. She had a long plait of brown hair that hung down as they carried her. She is my little girl, said Mr. Puckler. He hardly knew his own voice. He leaned over Elsie's face in the gentle light of the children's ward, and when he had stood there a minute, the beautiful brown eyes opened, and looked up to his. Papa! cried Elsie, softly. I knew you would come. Then Mr. Puckler did not know what he did or said for a moment, and what he felt was worth all the fear terror and despair that had almost killed him that night. But by and by, Elsie was telling her story, and the nurse let her speak, for there were only two other children in the room who were getting well and were sound asleep. They were big boys with bad faces, Said Elsie, and they tried to get Nina away from me, but I held on and fought as well as I could till one of them hit me with something, and I don't remember any more, for so I tumbled down, and I suppose the boys ran away, and somebody found me there. I'm afraid Nina is all smashed. Here is the box, said the nurse. We could not take it out of her arms till she came to herself. Should you like to see if the doll is broken? And she undid the string cleverly, but Nina was all smashed to pieces only the gentle light of the children's ward made a pale green sheen in the folds of the little mother hubbard frock. and that's the end of the story see and you thought this would be a horror story and honestly when i got to that bit in the middle about the doll's eyes i thought we were going to find out that poor little rousey had been turned into the doll but it really went a different direction at the end didn't it a lot of Victorian Christmas sentimentality there. It was uh, cheery <laughs> and certainly no need to be frightened of Dolly. Okay, I hope you all enjoyed this and you have a great Christmas wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Take care. Bye for now. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at age of Victoria podcast at gmail.com Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com The show also has a Facebook page and a group Just search for Age of Victoria Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts Takes less time than making a coffee If you want to support the show on Patreon there's a link in the show notes or you can go to patreon.com and search for Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.